You may be seated. When President Harry Truman's only child, his daughter Margaret, was getting married, the president was quite worried, and his uh, Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, decided to write the president a letter. He wrote in the midst of that letter, remember, President, that marriage is life's biggest risk. I'm not sure that comforted the president much. <laughs> marriage is life's biggest risk. Well, it is. There's a lot of things that uh, you really don't know about anyone until you marry them. And after all, uh, who knows what will happen in life? Who knows what the future will bring? Who knows someone might change? And the one who changes might be you. I know the words of the consent by heart almost. I used to stand right here at the top of the steps of whatever church I was the priest and look at the man and say, well, let's take trip, maybe Corey. Uh, Corey, you take this woman to be your wife, to live together in the covenant of marriage. Will you love her, comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health and forsaking all others, be faithful to her? as long as you both shall live. And he always said, I will. Not I do, because I do is something you just do once. I will is something that you mean it to happen now in continuous action into the future. It's a big risk. It is, I suppose, if not life's biggest risk, it's right up there at the top. But it's also, I suggest to you this morning, that it is eternity's biggest risk. Because the reality is this, that all of human history will end in a wedding. The wedding between Jesus Christ and His church the Lamb of God who has purchased His bride with His blood. And everyone who is invited to the feast, to the wedding, is blessed. And everyone who is not is judged. The marriage between Christ and His church is the most eternal marriage that will ever be. And what is amazing about this wedding that we heard read about in this uh, book of Revelation is that the, the wedding happens after a great battle. I mean, it's like the Lord of the Rings. After the battle, the wedding takes place. And the wedding is that which consummates the whole romance, if you will. But only after the judgment. Some years ago, I was uh, walking through the graveyard of St. Michael's Church in Charleston. It was a Sunday morning. 
It was in between the 8 o'clock service and the 10-15 service. And since it was a Sunday morning, I was walking with my crozier and uh, my miter and all my haberdashery here that I wear. And I came across some tourists who were there in the graveyard gazing down at a tombstone. I know they were tourists because they were dressed in Bermuda shorts and a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> and no Charlestonian would be caught dead in the cemetery of St. Michael's in such attire. And as I came up to this group gazing down at the tombstone, I said to them, Are you contemplating your own mortality or someone else's? The man looked up and said, what did you say? <laughs> I said, are you contemplating your own mortality or someone else's? Now, the, what caused me to go to that uh, question just popped into my mind, but it had something to do with the text I was preaching on that morning from 2 Corinthians. The text was this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive, to give an account of what we have done in the body, whether for good or evil. And even the Christian is not exempt from that, standing before the judgment seat of Christ. If that doesn't sober a chap up, I don't know what will. And the question I posed to the unsuspecting tourists sobered him up. You're contemplating your own mortality or someone else's. Now here's the amazing thing. If you get serious about the fact that there may be a judgment and as the black preacher once said just because we don't talk about it don't mean it not coming. When was the last time you heard a sermon on the judgment? Ask you to search your own soul as to whether you're prepared to give an account for your life. And if that doesn't sober you up, what will? But here's the amazing thing. In the Bible, the judgment is often the moment of exultation, of joy, of delight, of rejoicing. That's what we encountered in the gospel, uh, the uh, reading this morning from the book of Revelation. I mean, hear the words. The judgment has just happened to Babylon, the great harlot of the world, the one who had seduced the world with her charm into darkness and abuse and of evil. Our passage opened this morning just after the judgment had taken place of the great city. 
And our text opened with these words. After this I heard what seemed like to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with immorality and has avenged her blood on His servants. Hallelujah! The praise goes up forever. And the reason why there is this rejoicing is because things are finally put right. Justice is finally done. The abused are finally vindicated. The martyred are, are given their, um, their prayers answered. The brokenness of the world is healed. And all life is put right. It is what you yearn for in your better moments. When you read of some shooting done in some school, when some darkness ravaging the world, does not your heart cry out, when will this end? How much of this do we have to have? Just recently with that shooting in Colorado so near where the first of these school shootings, Columbine, first took place, the, the mayor of the city said, how much longer do we have to have this? So at the judgment, when God is declared king and darkness is put to flight, there is rejoicing. Let us rejoice, uh, the scriptures say, and be glad and give him the glory. And then after this great victory, well, what comes in every great romance, every great movie? A wedding. The ones you've been waiting for to see them united are there to pledge their lives to one another. It never shows them on the far side of the wedding, mind you, but nevertheless, you look forward to the marriage, the wedding. And this is right there in the scriptures that we heard read this morning. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. To her it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are all images or symbols, if you will, of what heaven will be like. Gosh, just the other day I, I had a dentist appointment. And after the, all the teeth cleansing, you know, the... Uh, the dentist came in and did the final things, and he said, how are you doing, and, uh, Bishop? And I said, I'm doing well. How are you doing? He says, I just buried my father a few days ago. I said, oh, how's that going for you? He said, you know, I, in many ways, oh, I'm grieving, I'm relieved. He's up there with mom. 
was up there with his wife. There's this image, you see. This image that somehow or another marriage is the consummation of all things. I didn't have time or inclination to go into the great marriage isn't going to be the marriage that we have on this earth between a husband and wife. The great marriage will be between Christ and His church. It is a vision of humanity that goes all the way back to the, the beginning of the book of Genesis. You know, the whole Bible from beginning to end in many ways is, is described as a relationship between God and His people. It is the covenant that is there between God and His people. And thereafter, God has made man and woman. Have you noticed something? That what happens is that God ushers Eve God ushers the woman before the man, before Adam presents her to him. And that is where we get the tradition, you know, of the father walking the bride down the aisle. It's all a mirror of Genesis that the father gives the woman to the man. You remember what he says? It's almost as if he says it. It's in poetic language. It's often in the Bible printed as if it's poetry. It's hard to translate it fully, but it's something to the effect, this at last is a partner. This at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. And then the text says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. I wish every, every Christian could experience a wedding the way a priest experiences it when he's presiding over the vows. I mean, you come out as the priest, you stand on the steps, and the groom and, and the best men, the best man and the groomsmen are standing on one side, and the music begins to play, and the bridesmaids walk down the aisle, and then the flower girl, and then the music changes to a higher crescendo, and down the aisle comes with the father and walking his daughter, if all is good. Walking the bride down, she is radiant, she trembles, she glows. The groom, you can see his emotions rising up within him. You can see the father swallowing hard. He's not, he thinks he's prepared, but he's not prepared for the emotion that swells up within him. He swallows hard. He tries to press down the emotions. Sometimes he breaks out weeping, and sometimes the tears swell. I know from personal experience, walking a daughter down the aisle, I was not prepared for the emotion. I thought, where does this come from? I don't understand this. <laughs> and I've seen it a thousand times. It's quite an event. And Jesus takes that whole event and speaks about the kingdom of God and the relationship 
of God to his people with this image of the groom and the, and the bride. And one of the great places he does it is one, in one of his parables where he says, a king wanted to have a feast, a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out the invitations. And the invitations were all answered with a yes. So he killed the, the animals for the feast and sent out the reminder, the feast is ready, come. But one man said, I just bought a field yesterday and now I've got to go see it today. Please excuse me. One man said, I just bought five oxen. I got to go see what they look like. It's like saying, I just bought five cars. I got to go see what I bought. I mean, talk about a lame excuse. Please excuse me. One man says, I just got married. Won't be able to come. As if he just did it that morning, just decided to do it. And in Luke's gospel... What the king does after that is he said, servants go out into the neighborhoods, into the byways, into the streets and find the lame, the blind, the deaf, the mute, the poor and bring them in because my feast will not go uncelebrated. The wedding must go on. So when we get to the book of Revelation and we see this great wedding between the Lamb of God and His bride, the church, this picture of this parable should be in your mind. And the Bible moves effortlessly between the image, the metaphor of the bride, we as the bride of Christ and we as the guests, all the same people bride and guest at one and the same time. The Bible says then, blessed are those who have received an invitation to the wedding feast of the Lamb. So I pose a question to you. After the judgment, after you have given an account of your life before Christ, will you receive an invitation to the wedding supper of the Lamb? What do you need to get one? Well, Jesus just told you in the parable that I recited. Go out into the byways for those who have chosen not to come will not get an invitation. They've rejected it. But go out into the byways and invite the lame, the blind, the deaf, the mute, the poor, and bring them in. That parable is very dear to me, I must say. 
And let me tell you why. I told uh, the women here at St. Paul's who are part of the Anglican Women's Annual Meeting of an experience that I had when I was five years old. You see, for the first uh, few years of my life, I could not speak in such a way that anyone could understand me. So when I went off to kindergarten in my neighborhood school, they had a speech therapist with whom I met once a week. But after a whole year in kindergarten and going to the speech therapist, the principal called my mother and father and me into the principal's office. And he said, Mr. and Mrs. Lawrence, your child Mark needs more help than we can give him. He needs to be there at McKinley School where he can have a speech therapist for several hours every day. So come the first day of first grade, I caught a bus and rode 45 minutes across town to McKinley School. I still remember the first day of stepping off that bus onto the sidewalk. It is vividly in my mind. It will never go away until perhaps I die. I stepped off the bus. And the first person I saw walking towards me is a little boy with sunglasses on and a little tapping stick that he was tapping along the sidewalk. I soon learned he was blind. Walking towards the corridor, looking for the class number, I came across another little boy. He had a a metal canister around his neck. It hung in his chest with wires that went up into each of the ears, for without it he could not hear. And one boy, or was it a girl, had polio and she hobbled with crutches. And another child was what we called a spastic. He could not control the movements of his arm. Another child could not control the movement of a leg. Another child could not control the movement of a mouth. And often during the middle of the lunch would vomit all over the, the, the table. I thought to myself at the age of six, I'm here with misfits. I guess I'm a misfit myself. First grade, second grade, third grade. By the time I got to fourth grade, I could speak well enough that they could put me into the, the mainstream. And I put all of that behind me. It was in the past. Until I turned 21. And I don't know why, I don't know how, except for all I can say it was the grace of God that one day I began to see myself in the eyes of God, the way God sees me. 
You know, a lot of people make a big deal out of how they think about God, but the real question in life is, what does he think about you? And suddenly I saw how he saw me. He saw me as blind to his glory, deaf to his word. I could not hear the word of God and believe it. I could not speak the praise of God with my mute mouth. I could not walk the pathway of God with my own legs and strength. And in the eyes of God, I was a spiritual spastic and walked around in the most unsightly manner. And when I saw that, I said, God, forgive me. Come into my life and be my Savior. And then, and then, and then, on that day, I got an invitation to the wedding supper of the Lamb. For he does not call those who think they are righteous. He calls those who know they need a Savior to open their eyes to see his glory, to open their ears to hear the word of God, to open their hearts to believe, to empower them to live the Christian life and to live a godly life in his sight. And then, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Have you received an invitation to the wedding supper of the Lamb? It comes not through your goodness, but through a recognition of your need, that you need a Savior, even the Lamb of God, who will take away the sins of the world, and not just the world's, but yours.